Hello Church, um, this morning's reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 18, verse 1 to 16. I'm going to give you a moment to turn there, or to go there on your phone. So that's 1 Samuel, chapter 18, verse 1 to 16. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, and he gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and with dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? From that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in the house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but the Lord had left Saul. So he sent David away from him, and gave him a command over ten thousand men. David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success, because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he led them in their campaigns. This is the word of the Lord. James, thank you very much indeed. And uh, let me add my welcome to everybody this morning, and especially to Corneille and to Becky and Elizabeth. And uh, this evening I'm going to be preaching at Corneille's church out in Cryfontaine, so do please keep, uh, keep all of us in your prayers, Gillian and I, as we go out there. Well, do please have your Bible open at the passage that James has just read for us, and I'm going to ask for the Lord's help in a word of prayer. Let's, uh, let's pray. Well, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the awesome privilege of opening your word and holding it in our hands. And we pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands so that as we read about you in the pages of Scripture, our hearts might be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love. Our minds might be filled with your truth. 
and our lives might be equipped to serve and glorify your name. Amen. Well, for those of you uh, listening online and who've just joined us, we're in a series on the life of David, uh, as we find it in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And as we said at the beginning of our series, the, the Old Testament account of the life of David is the most extensive account of a single human life in all of ancient literature. And that, I think, makes uh, a study of David's life fascinating for that reason alone. But, of course, it's not the main reason for our series. So I want to begin this morning uh, with a quotation from David Jackman. David is one of the finest Bible teachers, I think, of the last 50 years. (coughs) And he happens to be on the advisory board of our church And uh, in one of his books, he says this, quote, The Bible is one book from beginning to end, revealing one God whose nature does not change and who deals consistently with human beings then and now on the basis of his own character. And that means that there is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It means that when we come to the Bible, we're dealing with one God, one book, and one plan. End quote. So, the main reason for studying the life of David is that David is a very key figure in God's salvation plan for the entire human race. And as we see how the unchanging God establishes his rule over the rebellious people of Israel through David, we're actually learning how God (coughs) establishes his rule over rebellious people in every generation right down to the present day. And of course that finds its ultimate fulfilment and focus in the rule of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, with that in mind, the, the passage that we're looking at today opens up for us uh, a truth which goes on to become the central teaching in the New Testament. But it's a truth which is often overlooked uh, or neglected today. Now, the truth we're talking about is this, that a person's attitude to God is revealed by their attitude to God's King. Sounds obvious, but I wonder if you can see how important it is. It's important, I think, because practically everyone in Cape Town will say they believe in God. Uh, We've been here for 19 years, and in that time, I can only think of one person who said to me, I don't believe in God. So everyone believes in God. But of those people who say they do believe in God, I would suggest that only a very small percentage will also say that they believe in Jesus in the sense that they love him and are actively seeking to serve him in every area of their lives. Now the passage before us brings that issue right out into the open. 
because it describes the different responses to David following the remarkable events that we looked at last week in chapter 17. That, of course, was the account of David's victory over Goliath the Philistine. And this week we find that that victory raises three questions in the mind of every man, woman and child in Israel. The first question they were facing was, do you love him? Do you love the man raised up by God to defeat the enemies of God's people, even though he looks really weak and unimpressive? The second question was, do you trust him? Because, of course, it was one thing to look back and to be thankful for his astonishing victory over their enemies in the past. But what about today? Were they going to trust him to go on fighting their battles today, tomorrow, and every day after that? And then the third question that was just beginning to arise and emerges towards the end of the passage was, will you obey him? Because if he's been raised up by God to rule over his people, and if the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him with power, as we saw back in chapter 16, so that he can fight your battles and defeat your enemies, well, will you submit to his rule? Now, because you and I face exactly the same questions today concerning great David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus, can I suggest that this passage has got a great deal to say to you and me this morning. So let's consider these three questions together. Question one. Do you love him? Now, perhaps the most important thing about David's victory (coughs) over Goliath is that it was public. Everybody knew it. It was front-page news. Now, why is that so important? Well, if you cast your mind back to the very first study we did in chapter 16, uh, where we were told that David was chosen by God, We were also told that David was anointed by God's prophet and that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. But, all of those events took place in private. Uh, Only David's family and Samuel saw what happened. Nobody else did. Uh, And even those who were present didn't really understand what on earth was going on. And at that point... No one else in Israel even knew who David was. But in chapter 17, the whole army were eyewitnesses of David's victory. More than that, because David's victory meant freedom for the entire nation, the news of the victory spread like wildfire. So look with me at uh, chapter 18, verse 6 says, uh, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So can you see that David's victory is public confirmation of what had previously only been revealed in private. 
Now, everybody knows about it. Nobody can deny it. And the result is that everyone loves David. Uh, The most surprising response, I think, comes from Jonathan. In verse 1, we're told that Jonathan and David became one in spirit. And twice in the first three verses, we're told Jonathan loved him as himself. Now, I say that's surprising because, of course, until this point, Jonathan has been Israel's champion on the battlefield. He's also the son of Saul, which means that Jonathan is heir to the throne. So you might expect him to be jealous of David's success. And but instead we actually find the opposite, and we'll say more about Jonathan in a moment. But please notice first that Jonathan isn't alone. Why not? Verse 16. Have a look at verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So have you got the picture? Everybody loves David. But what kind of love is it? Surely it's not mere affection for David because he's a terrific guy. No, we saw last week that all Israel knew that they were facing certain defeat and slavery at the hands of the enemy. When Goliath appeared, they were dismayed and terrified, chapter 17, but God had sent David. And David made no secret of the fact that his victory over the enemy belonged to the Lord. It was God who gave the victory. So can you see that here in chapter 18, this love is a response to God's grace channeled through David, who saved them out of real danger in the most miraculous way. So everybody knows that David is the saviour sent by God to destroy Israel's enemy. And now, their heart attitude to David is reflecting their heart attitude to God. And of course it's exactly the same for us, isn't it? What a challenge that is for those of us who claim to love the Lord Jesus. There's a place in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father. In other words, whether we truly love Jesus is absolutely critical to whether we go on experiencing the love of God in our own lives. So, my dear friend, do you love Jesus? Do you remember that you were a slave to sin and that there was a time when you realised that without Jesus you would have been destroyed? Do you love Jesus for what he's done for you personally? Do you put him first in your life? Or does your love for Jesus actually mean something else? There's an apocryphal story about the Apostle Peter that I think illustrates this rather nicely. Because it's uh, apocryphal means that you won't actually find it in the Bible. It's a fictional story 
But it illustrates, I think, a rather important truth. And it goes like this. Uh, Jesus has been teaching the disciples and uh, at the end of the session he gets up and he says to the disciples, carry a stone for me. Well, the disciples look at one another and they're a bit confused, but uh, Peter looks round and he picks up the smallest pebble he can find, not much bigger than a bit of gravel really, and uh, feeling rather proud of himself, he smiles at Jesus uh, as if to say, well, I'm doing what you said, I'm in compliance. And uh, the disciples, they follow the Lord Jesus and after a couple of hours walking in the hot sun, Jesus tells them to stop and he tells the disciples to take out their stones and with a wave of his hand he changes the stones into bread and he says, now have lunch. So everybody starts to eat their bread and there's Peter with his little mini muffin and uh, he says, oh, okay, I see. Why didn't you tell me? And then when everybody's finished, Jesus gets up and says again, carry a stone for me. And uh, this time, Peter thinks, well, he's he's caught on. So he picks up the largest boulder that he can possibly find and he begins to follow Jesus, staggering along and he's huffing and puffing, thinking to himself, I just can't wait for supper. And uh, after a long time, Jesus leads the disciples to the bank of a river and he says to them all, throw your stones into the river. And they all throw them in. Jesus turns around and he starts to walk away. And the disciples, what on earth is going on? They just can't believe what's happening. And Jesus says, who were you carrying the stone for? Do you see the point? You see, the love of Jonathan and the people for David is a heartfelt response to the grace of God they'd experienced in the victory which God gave through David. But that's entirely different, isn't it, to the cupboard love that really values Jesus only for what we can get out of him. That kind of love is only treating Jesus as a kind of divine vending machine. And it goes up and down depending on whether Jesus is giving us what we want, when we want, in the way that we want. But that's not the kind of love Jesus is looking for. So, is your love for Jesus a heartfelt response to the grace of God you've received in the Gospel Or is it something else? Well, that's the first question in our passage this morning. Do you love him? But the people in Israel also faced a second question after the victory of David. They all seemed to be loving David. But the second question was, do you trust him? I mean, it's one thing, isn't it, to love the king because of what he's done in the past, but trust is different. Trust has got to do with whether we believe the king will go on fighting our battles for us and rescuing us from all our enemies. Will the Lord continue to be with him in the future in the same way that he was with him in the past? 
Now we have to work a little bit harder here, but the clue lies in the fact that chapter 18 and chapter 19 are a unit. It's one story. And they begin and they end with two very similar events, so follow me carefully. At the beginning of the unit, in chapter 18, verse 4, we find Jonathan doing something really rather odd. We read there that Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing and he gave it to David. Now, that robe wasn't any ordinary piece of clothing. It was Jonathan's princely robe, which showed that he was heir to the throne of his father, Saul. And here what he does is he takes it off and he gives it to David. So what's he doing? Well, he's saying, isn't he, that I can see from your extraordinary victory over Goliath that you are the one chosen by God to be Israel's next king. It's not me. It's not me. And I am voluntarily submitting to God's choice. Unfortunately, Saul doesn't see things in quite the same way. We've already seen that Saul has become jealous of David, and even though he knows that God has decreed that the kingdom's going to be taken from him, he can't bring himself to accept it. And in chapters 18 and 19, Saul makes no fewer than six attempts to kill David. Until in the end, David makes his escape. Now let's pick up the story at chapter 19, verse 18. Can we all see chapter 19, verse 18 in our Bibles? <clears throat> verse 18. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Nioth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it and he sent more men and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Sechu. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Nioth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Nioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him and he walked along <coughs> prophesying until he came to Nioth. Now pay attention, verse 24. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night and that's why people say he saw also among the prophets. Now have you got the picture? At the beginning of chapter 18, we're told that Jonathan loves David and willingly gives him his royal robe. And then at the end of chapter 19, 
we discover that although Saul hates David and wants to kill him, he's overpowered by the Spirit of God and strips off his royal robes, which are the outward sign of his kingship. So you've got two diametrically opposite attitudes to David, which are, of course, two diametrically opposite views to God. But in the case of Saul, this is fascinating, the Spirit of God exposes the underlying reality, which is that in God's eyes, Saul is no longer king. Now, do you see the point? Even the most powerful man in the nation, the king, can't frustrate God's plans and purposes. God has decreed David's going to be king. And no power in heaven or on earth can prevent that from happening. That reminds us, of course, that we're still living in a rebellious world where people are constantly challenging and resisting the authority of God. We're used to that. The attacks on the authority of God's word are everywhere in our culture. But you see, you and I mustn't let that knock us off balance. Chapter 18 reminds us that we're not to judge by appearances. And as we read on through 1 and 2 Samuel, we find that Saul's attacks on David are going to continue for many years. But you see, that wasn't the end of the story. God's will did prevail. And David did become king over Israel. And he ruled successfully for many years. And the point for us, you see, is that just because the church today sometimes looks weak and appears almost to have lost its voice in the public square, that does not mean that God's plan has failed or that God has lost his power. No, the story of David is reminding us that if God has said, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and God has said that, well, friends, that is precisely what's going to happen. And we can trust God to do it. Now, that then brings us to the third question that people in Israel were beginning to be faced with after David's spectacular victory over Goliath. And the question is, will you obey him? Now in chapter 18, uh, we noticed, didn't we, that Jonathan didn't just give David his robe, but look again at verse 4. He even gave David his sword. Now in that culture... To give your sword to another warrior was highly significant. It meant that Jonathan was saying something like this. He was saying, I, I will become radically vulnerable to you to the point of death. And if you know your history at all, you'll be aware that in later times, whenever a defeated general handed over his sword to his opposite number, it was a sign of surrender. So think about that for a moment. 
Jonathan gives up his claim to power and authority to rule over others and he even gives David authority over his life. So more than simply loving David, more than trusting David, Jonathan submits to David. Now what's going on here? Why would Jonathan do that at this particular point? I mean, there was no immediate pressure for him to put his life so completely under David's authority. So why do it? Well, three times in the passage, we're told that David was successful. So firstly, in verse 5, chapter 18, verse 5, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Now, in a few weeks' time, the the students over here are going to be writing their mid-year exams, and as the day approaches, we're going to be praying that they will be successful, meaning we want them to pass. We want them to achieve the goal for which they've all been working so hard. That's what we mean when we use the word success today. Success is the achievement of a goal or an objective. That is not the meaning of the word here. So in verse 5, please look at your Bible, you'll notice that there's a footnote next to the word successfully. And at the bottom of the page, we're told that the alternative translation is the word wisely. And in the Bible, wisdom is an attribute of God. So when we come to the wisdom literature in the Bible, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job and so on, we discover that wisdom is God's word on how to live successfully in the world that he has made. Now look down to verse 14 in our passage. In everything he did, David had great success because the Lord was with him. So at this stage in his career, David was exceptionally successful in all his campaigns. But the reason he was successful was because the Lord was with him and gave him wisdom. And Jonathan knew it. You see, he could see that here at last was a king who could lead the people into battle and win. And the reason that he was able to win was that the Lord had given him wisdom. So so for Jonathan, surrendering to David and following him was the wise thing to do. I wonder if you can see how this begins to transform our understanding of Christian obedience. Why do so many people in church want Jesus to be their saviour but actually refuse to have him as their Lord? Answer, because obedience to Christ feels like an imposition. It feels like something that's going to cramp their lifestyle. 
But you see, dear friends, the commands of Jesus are wisdom from God. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, all of them. And that means, you see, that his commands are showing us how to live successfully and happily in God's world. So obedience to Jesus isn't a rather irritating limitation. No, it's the way to have a meaningful, fulfilling, happy life. To put it simply, obedience to Jesus is the wise way to live. So as we close, I want to invite you to turn to a familiar text I've already mentioned in the New Testament, but I think it'll help us to apply the message. Turn to John 14 and verse 21. Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 21. Wait till we're all there. Verse 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Now, friends, is it not true that there are many Christians out there who are miserable and wondering where on earth the joy is in following Jesus? As far as they can see, uh, God's love is just an idea in the Bible rather than a reality in their own experience. Now, if that's you, is it possible that that's because you haven't yet fully surrendered your life to Jesus? That you're holding out against his gracious rule in certain key areas of your life? that you haven't yet taken that vital step of making yourself completely vulnerable to him. Well, if that is you, can I encourage you to do that this morning, to follow the example of Jonathan with David and surrender completely to God's king, because in the end, it's actually the only wise way to live. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the victory of Calvary's cross. We praise you that your plans and purposes are always perfectly fulfilled. We pray that you would give us grace to surrender our lives to you in every part so that your purposes might be fulfilled in us and that we might go on experiencing the Father's love in our own lives and then boldly proclaim that love to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.